as we think about these imposter feelings, we kind of recognize that it's not all about us, that there's costs and consequences more broadly, right? That, that everybody loses when bright people pull back or burn out or chronically procrastinate or whatever it might be, that it, it is costly to the world. And just put your gifts out there. Welcome back to the North Star Podcast. Today I have Dr. Valerie Young on the show. I am so excited to share her with you guys. She is the leading global thought leader on imposter syndrome, a speaker, the co-founder of the Imposter Syndrome Institute, and the award-winning author of The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, Why Capable People Suffer from Imposter Syndrome and How to Thrive in Spite of It. She is just the go-to person for all things imposter syndrome. And this is why I'm so honored to have her on the show. She's just such a wealth of wisdom. And I absolutely love that she is such a unique thinker. She takes a different approach to imposter syndrome than the typical leader does on this particular subject. And she's really making changes for so many people. And yeah, so this episode, we really get into all of it. We get into what imposter syndrome is, the true definition, signs and symptoms of it, the effects of it, the effects if we you know, never heal it, what that really means for society, the world, and of course, how to go about healing it. So this is a truly empowering conversation with just a seminal thought leader on this topic. And I, I just can't say I just can't say enough. Today's really the day for colds. I feel everybody has some throat clearing to do. Um, but anyway, I just really cannot wait for you guys to take a listen to this episode. I have personally had tons of experiences as I share with her, you know, shortly in this episode with imposter syndrome, uh, particularly when I started out on this you know, offbeat path that I am now or have been on now since about 2017. But I told her like at the top of 2017, when I first went out on my own, it was like, Wah! what am I doing? Why don't I know everything? Not even defining what everything was, just feeling like I was so lost and so insecure. And now, of course, as we go through waves of growth, it comes back and it's not about eliminating it for good, as Dr. Valerie says, but really how to move through it and then again you actually can come to a place as she has where you have fully healed it so I love that I love this conversation I hope that you enjoy it and take away as much as I did from it all right I'll see you guys on the other side I was really <clears throat> into drawing mm. you know I like I actually became an art major because I like to draw, not realizing what I really should have done was become an illustrator because I wasn't like a fine artist or an abstract artist. I like to like look at something and, you know, copy it for the most part. So, yeah, I think I was creative um, and, and entrepreneurial in many ways. You know, I, I would be the kid who would want to like set up a lemonade stand or, or just, you know, put on a, get my brothers to be in a show in the backyard and charge people to come or collect things at my grandmother's house that have a tag sale and make them buy them back from me, you know, <laughs> <Love> that. <laughs> or an art sale. Sometimes we had art sales too. They could walk around the living room and look at my art and buy them for a penny or a nickel or something. So always like an out of the box thinker, because even your approach to the work that you do is, or was at the time out of the box in your approach to imposter syndrome you were always kind of that way. Like, do you identify with that as someone who was always sort of thinking in a different way? Yeah, well, definitely. In addition to the imposter syndrome work, which I can talk about kind of where that all mm -hmm. started when I was in a doctoral student in graduate school, but um, I've just always been entrepreneurial. For 25 years, I had a business, I had a newsletter called Changing Course for people who wanted to figure out how do you connect the dots between what do you love to do and how you can make money and make a living doing it. And how do you kind of transition from having a boss? Because I used to commute 90 miles a day to a corporate job uh, for mm -hmm. seven years. You know, how do you kind of transition from having a boss to being your own bo boss so you can have a life? That's incredible. And 
are you still, you're not still doing that. It doesn't sound like. No, I sold that business to two of the people. I, I used to train people to be kind of outside the job box career coaches. Because uh-huh. most career coaches, all they can see is, oh, you like dogs and you like travel. You, know, you could be a veterinarian or a travel agent. They couldn't like connect the dots to see how you could monetize that and mm-hmm. to create your own thing somehow. Mm-hmm. So, so I sold it to a couple of people who'd gone through my coach training program. That's so, that's so interesting and so valuable. I mean, particularly as societies progress, because it's definitely progressed in such a way that more and more people are wanting to look at themselves and create a life for them based on, you know, what they find versus the external world in the job market that's available. Yeah. You know, at the time I came up with what I call the life first work second approach to career planning, mm-hmm. which was because most people, they think, you know, it's all about what are you, what are your skills? Like, oh, you're good at numbers. You should be an accountant or your people would say, I really like people. I think I'll go into HR. And I would go, do you know what, do you understand what HR is? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they get, then they'd end up in some job and look around and go, oh, I'm commuting and I'm sitting under fluorescent lights. I mean, things are different now because so many more people can work remotely. Right. But that was kind of the, the gig, you know, and it's like they ended up with this life. So to me, it was like flip it around, figure out what you want your life to look like first, mm-hmm. then come up with ways to generate income so you can have as much of that life as possible. Because if you knew you wanted summers off, that that was like heaven on earth for you, mm-hmm. some careers would be, you know, and even businesses would be conducive to that and some wouldn't. So mm-hmm. pick one that's going to kind of allow that or allow you to live near the ocean or whatever is important to you. Oh, that's, that's a real, it's so valuable. Cause I think like the one corporate job that I had was, I mean, it's a, it was a great, it is a great company, but it, that it, the lifestyle was exactly what you just described. It was the fluorescent lights. It was, you know, leave your house at seven, come back at 8 PM, that sort of thing. Your whole life is this career and knowing myself now, I'm like, no wonder you lasted 10 months. I mean, it does, it's not a big surprise because it was so misaligned with what you wanted, but you just didn't know you weren't so conscious of it. So it sounds like you're help. you were helping people help people tie those two together. Yeah. You know, and I figured it out because my mom passed away at 61, totally unexpected of a heart attack. And that Mm -hmm. was like one of those wake up calls. So I, I left my corporate job and I went to a smaller company closer to home mm-hmm. but really after a few months I realized I kind of changed deck chairs on the Titanic and it kind of hit me that I I didn't need a new job or a new career like I needed a, a whole new life and that's what kind of set me on this path of figuring out well how, how do you change course because it's not like jump off a cliff.com you know just mm-hmm. immediately you've got bills to pay like how do you kind of figure it out and transition to, to being your own boss wow wow that's incredible and so what was it that led you from that work like what was the decision where you just you want something new you'd kind of like been in that for a while or what led to the imposter syndrome work that you know well I was always doing the imposter syndrome work I mean the first uh, my degree is in education it's not in psychology we were um so I, I I did my dissertation I had these findings and by the way most research on imposter syndrome and imposter phenomena is done with undergraduate students my research, I interviewed 15 professional women, over half were women of color. And that was very unusual in the early 1980s. It's unusual now, but Mm -hmm. definitely unusual then. Being an educator, adult educator, I immediately, my instinct was just to take my findings and turn it into a full day workshop to have exercises and experiences and conversations where people could kind of understand how imposter syndrome was showing up in their life in the form of a pattern, understand where it came from, and look at strategies for kind of unlearning it. So it, honestly, I have to tell you, Mackenzie, it wasn't until last year I was asked to write a chapter to a book being published by the American Psychological Association, the APA. Mm-hmm. I'm the only non-academic. I'm the only non-psychologist who was invited to participate, which, which was stressful because I know how those people think, right? And they do not respect people like me who aren't in academia or aren't clinicians. Um And that's when I realized that I really had created the first educational intervention to imposter syndrome. They're working on clinical interventions. What are some things I could do with you one-on-one in therapy? And mine is more kind of one-to-many. How could we, as a group in in a room, address imposter syndrome and use education to get to the other side? 
So powerful. And in the way that you perceive it, because I did notice like in, you know, going through your work, listening to some talks you've given and stuff like that, that, yeah, you do take this different approach, you know, given your own background, which makes sense. Do you see both approaches working simultaneously together to, you know, create a difference? Or do you believe that there should be more people kind of taking an educational approach to Imposter you know, I mean, certainly there's a place for therapy. I, I'm, I would never, you know, kind of bash therapy. Many people find it very useful. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, I've met people who've said, wow, I spent three years in therapy and I got more out of this 90 minute mm-hmm. interactive workshop than mm-hmm. I did in, in three years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think partly that's because a lot of therapists are focusing almost exclusively on family messages and expectations. Mm-hmm. They're kind of looking for that kind of core wound, you know, that thing your father said or your mother said, or that expectation that sets you on this path to become having the, the posture feelings. And for some people, that's absolutely the, the case, you know, is, is those family messages. Other people, it's, it doesn't quite resonate, mm-hmm. you know. And then I see people like on LinkedIn, I don't know if she's a therapist, but I know she's definitely a coach. And she said, when she works with her clients, she, she, she under she thinks imposter syndrome comes down to fundamentally feel, feelings of unworthiness. That's what it's about. So she's going to help them to feel worthy. I wrote to her and I said, I don't think that's Michelle Obama's issue. Mm-hmm. I don't think Michelle Obama feels unworthy. <laughs> right? okay. um, her parents were really supportive. I mean, she got some bad messages based on racism from guidance counselors in high school. But, you know, she she was highly educated, which also makes her more susceptible to imposter syndrome. She had a really good connection because she married a guy who was going to be the future president. You know? So it's got first generation in her family to go to college and become a white collar professional success. So I think there's lots of reasons that go beyond if it's not one thing, it's your mother. Mm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe I think a lot of people at this point, I was going to say, should we back it up a little bit and talk about imposter syndrome? in and of itself, it's not a a syndrome, right? As I think I read with your exact words. Do you want to talk a little bit about, I do think it's known, but it would be good to hear from you, you know, how it, how it presents, maybe what some of the symptoms, signs and symptoms of it are. And then we can talk about, yeah, the difference between the unworthiness. I'm going to note that down to come back to. (laughs) Yeah. I, it's really important to define it because it's gotten to be kind of really misunderstood on the internet. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, these two women went to a nudist hotel and they wrote about how they had imposter syndrome walking through the lobby. I'm like, no, (laughs) you were nude in a hotel lobby. (laughs) That's why you felt uncomfortable, you know, or somebody else, uh, this guy felt like an imposter because Tampa Bay won the Super Bowl only because they got Tom Brady. So he had like Super Bowl imposter. I'm like, like, no, dude. So. Uh, or I think it's used more often any little inkling of self-doubt or nervousness. It's like, oh, you have imposter syndrome. Right. So imposter the, the term imposter phenomena was coined by Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes, two clinical psychologists at Georgia State University. And they didn't do an empirical study. They, these were observations based on their work, working one-on-one, um, mostly with undergraduate students. People, he, their paper was called the imposter phenomenon amongst high achieving women. Mm-hmm. But of the 178 women in the kind of pool of people they were looking at, I think it was like 120 were undergraduates, mm-hmm. some graduate students, some professional women. None were none were in, in management uh, roles. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they were what they observed was this kind of deep down this belief that we're really not as intelligent, capable, competent as people around us think that we are, and we had this belief despite concrete evidence of our um, past accomplishments or our abilities. Mm-hmm. So, which is interesting because if you can see the degree on the wall, you can see the good grades or the positive performance evaluation or the promotion, what's going on? Well, what's going on is those of us with imposter feelings have become very adept at essentially saying, well, sure, I did it, but I can explain all that. Hmm. Meaning we externalize our accomplishments. We chalk them up to things like, well, it was a fluke. I was just lucky. They just like me as if likability wasn't a valid skill set or, um, you know, sometimes we people put plant the seed that you're a diversity hire, and that can kind of get in our head. Right. Or we had connections, maybe it's a family business, maybe you were legacy admission into an elite university, you know, or your team effort, group effort, or or we think, well, if I can do it, 
anybody can, right? The supposed simplicity of the task. But as a result, so the, there's that fear of being found out. So it's both the belief that I'm not all that, what people think I am. It's externalizing, diminishing, dismissing our past accomplishments. And, and the result is the fear of being found out. Those three variables have to be operating. Mm -hmm. Right. And then the effect, as you're saying, it is, it is this fear that exists. And then how have you seen, because you said that when you did this work, you didn't just look at undergrad, if, if at all, you looked at people in the field, people who are, who are working. And so you right. saw in, you know, real, real, in the real world, so to speak, how this actually affects, I think predominantly women, or you also, did you write it? No, it was all women. Okay. Okay. At that, yeah. Cause that, the, the thinking was at the time that mm -hmm. it was something that was specific to women and I wasn't interviewing them about their imposter syndrome. I was interviewing them. These were women who worked with other women. I wanted their insights into like, what are you seeing mm -hmm. in your work with uh, either students who you advise or counsel in, you know, in a corporate setting, you know, I very senior person in HR, what are you seeing in women there? Uh, somebody from a technical trade school in Boston that was training women to be, you know, plumbers and electricians. And so it was a a host of things, consultants, but people who worked with other women. I wanted their observation, not just on imposter syndrome, but more broadly, women's self-limiting attitudes and behaviors. Right. And so what, I mean, I'm sure there was, there was a lot that was found. Were there common things that you saw then across these groups of like, more specifically, perhaps how people held themselves back or even like effects that were sort of cascading effects from this limiting? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think both from from my work, but also Clance and Imes, they looked at these kind of what they call common coping and protecting mechanisms, mm -hmm. these behaviors. In other words, when you feel like an imposter, you have to find a way to do two things. You have to find a way to, how do I manage the anxiety? And this is unconsciously, how do I manage the anxiety of waiting to be found out? Mm -hmm. And how do I actually avoid being found out? Mm -hmm. So they they found things like people who kind of hold back or fly into the radar who don't speak up in meetings, don't go for more challenging opportunities or assignments. They don't scale their business or try to get their art into a gallery or go for promotions. On the other end of the continuum is people who chronically overwork and overprepare, mm. not just out of the requirements of the job or being in business, for example, but out of the sense that the only reason I'm successful is I, I have to work harder than other people to kind of cover up for my supposed ineptness. Mm -hmm. Other people, it might be kind of chronically procrastinating on important things or never starting or finishing the degree, the book, the painting, the business plan. It could be alcohol or substance abuse or various ways we might sabotage ourselves. Yeah. So then obviously then if if this is going, if that's going on, then there is the emotional effect of that as well. If you're Everyone knows the feeling of procrastinating. That doesn't feel good. But if you're doing that chronically or if you're overworking chronically, especially, you know, unnecessarily, just the effects that it has on your health, it has on your relationships, like. Right. And on the organization as well. Right. So, you know, the thing about these patterns and these behaviors is we're trying to do the very best we can to take care of ourselves under the circumstances. So I always want people to kind of appreciate their pattern mm. and to step back and say, what does this pattern help protect me from? What does this pattern help me avoid? Mm. And what does this pattern help me get? So if I overwork and overprepare, I'm probably going to get more success because I've put in a lot of work and that makes it a hard pattern to break. If I fly into the radar, that protects me from failure or disappointment, helps me avoid humiliation or criticism. If I, if I don't put my work out there, nobody can criticize me. Mm. You know, procrastination works because if the results reflect the lack of time and effort, then I have this built-in excuse. Oh, I never even thought about that for procrastination. That's really interesting, actually. Yeah, years ago, there was this young woman who attended one of my workshops, and she really wanted this prestigious internship. And she had like six months to apply for it. And it was a rigorous application process. So let's say it's due June 15th. When do you think she starts the application? Like June 14th, right? She gets it in on time, but she doesn't get the internship. So procrastination protects us because we can say to ourselves, well, I'm disappointed, but I'm, I'm not surprised. But the rub is if she had been successful, she would have felt like a total fraud. Like, you know, fooled them again, 
when I get to the internship, they're going to realize sooner or later, I do not deserve to be here. Oh my gosh. It, it's such a, it's a, it's so terrible to hear that because you're right. Yeah. If, if that's, if that's how you're feeling, then it would manifest other in either case. So what actually, before we say, you know, how do you manage that in, in the meanwhile, I'm actually curious because you did, I know you have looked at this particular groups in which you see this more like who are the kinds of people that tend toward having these imposter syndrome traits like are there certain uh demo whether that's demographics I know you spoke about uh women of color as well or women itself versus men it looks like you sounds like you didn't look at men so maybe that comparison isn't available. Yeah, I didn't look at men, but there's a lot more research, you know, more recently that has. And especially at senior levels, it's very common amongst men. Okay. I think for many reasons, women are more susceptible because society has we, we have more things to feel inadequate about hmm. that we have more responsibility for, you know, being a parent or a house has to look great and we have to look great. There's more of that pressures mm-hmm. and also pressure to kind of represent your entire group especially if you're one of the first or the few or the only. Um, but that's really true also for any group for whom there are stereotypes about competence or intelligence. Hmm. You know, if you're the first person with a disability to be the regional sales manager or the first, you know, indigenous person, if you're the first generation in your family to go to college, you know, have a, a professional white collar job, people in certain fields are more vulnerable. People in creative fields because they're, they're constantly being judged by subjective standards by people whose job title is professional critic. Uh, I also see a lot in very information dense, rapidly changing fields like science, technology, medicine, where you feel like you should be able to keep up when no human possibly would. And in very highly educated fields like um, academia and, and medicine. Wow. Yeah. I, yeah, I can see that. I'm. I also my my sister is in medicine and also like a 4.0 student, and yet still, or maybe fits the bill perfectly. And medicine been. is also a culture of shaming. Hmm. You know, where you're constantly being shamed for what you don't know as you go through your residency. I, I did a podcast for the British Medical Journal, and there was a a medical student, and they called something different, but a resident, you know, two or three years into her residency. And the student especially was lamenting the lack of positive feedback in, in medical school. I mean, you're working so hard and you never hear anything positive. The, the best you can do on your final exam in the UK is no concern. We have no concern about you, which is very British. The point that I made to them is, is that you did not know this was the culture that you were signing up for, but this is the culture you're in. And when you know that, you can do more contextualizing and less personalizing. It's it's not about you. Same thing with academia. When even faculty, you know, when they're submitting an article to a journal, they're trying to get it into a journal or something into a conference. It's all a culture of critique, and all anyone is telling you is what's wrong. Right. And again, if you don't know that, you're going to be crushed. You're going to think it's you, but no, it's this is the culture that you're in. Yeah. Oh, it's such a, it's such a good point. And, and I can only imagine and from everything I've heard, it's got to be so tough, you know, swimming in those waters. And so if you are in, if you're in medicine, for example, or you are that, um, that, that person that you were speaking of earlier, who let's say did apply to the internship or, or job or whatnot, and you did get in, what is the approach to managing those thoughts? Is it different based on what kind of field you're in or is it all starting with awareness or how, what are the approaches? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I think the, you know, one step is to normalize imposter syndrome by again, doing less psychologizing and more contextualizing. Hmm. So once somebody understands like the perfectly good reasons why you might feel like a fraud, another one, for example, is being a student. And especially a doctoral student, you know, almost by definition, doctoral students feel like imposters. Uh, working alone makes you more susceptible. So those are kind of situational reasons. So, but once you understand kind of the situational, family, occupational, societal, and organizational kind of culture reasons for imposter, the next time you have a normal imposter moment, I, I encourage people to kind of hit that mental pause button 
zoom out and get that bigger picture. And I'm like, well, of course I feel this way. Mm. I mean, I look at Michelle Obama and I wrote an article on my website called Unpacking Michelle Obama's Imposter Syndrome. And instead of asking like, how could Michelle Obama have imposter syndrome? To me, the question was, how could she not? Mm. How could she not? So when you put it in that perspective, it kind of shifts the question to, to look at it in a broader perspective. That's one thing you can do. But I think the, the biggest thing that we can do, and, and honestly, I think the biggest source, uh, which is common amongst all groups, is is our unrealistic, unsustainable expectations about what it means to be competent. And we can hit these, you know, very high goals, you know, uh, our expectations sometimes, but we can't hit them consistently. And when we don't, we judge ourselves as lacking, as and as imposters. So it's like we have this rule book in our head. I used to do, I still do to some extent, but... I used to do full day workshops, right? And I'd get people in groups and I'd have them come up with the imposter rule book. They'd have flip charts and they'd fill these pages with, if I was really intelligent, capable, competent, I should, or I'd never, or I'd always, you know, I'd always know the answer. I'd never make a mistake. I should anticipate, you know, what have you, you know, I'd wow. do everything perfectly. I, I wouldn't need any help. And we would fill these flip charts. And, and from that, I started noticing patterns. The academic research looks at sees a lot of perfectionism, a strong link between imposter syndrome and perfectionism. And that is true, but not everybody resonates with that. And what I pulled out of that was, even though we all kind of skew or distort what it means to be competent, we don't all do it the same way. So I came up with these five competence types, the perfectionist, the expert, the natural genius, the soloist, and this and the superhuman. And they each have their own kind of unique spin on what it means to be competent all so high they can never again consistently hit it and to me that's where the change has to happen that's where the reframing has to happen right and and that it's so interesting and I love how you break that down do those expectations are you are they basically basically like societal is that where they're coming from like things that they've you know heard other people talk about or where do those super high unmeetable you know, expectations for themselves and co their competence level, like where does that typically stem from? You know, I, I don't know, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think for women, we can look at some, because perfection is, is higher amongst women. Okay. I think we can point to some societal mm -hmm. expectations around, you know, doing things perfectly. And I just think generally it's like, you want to do the best job that you possibly can, right? Right. Um, but I think for other people, it's just not, understanding what competence really is so you know if i feel like i need to know everything there possibly is to know about a subject before I, you know i can throw my hat into the ring or for before i'm ready you know if you're a graduate student then there'll always be one more book to read one more class to take one more degree to get like this this end endless pursuit of the end of knowledge like we're waiting to wake up and think like now i'm a perfectionist and I think just culturally, society, you know, somebody walks up on stage and they read their bio and you're like, wow, that person's really impressive. But they don't say, well, they flunked out of this or they they got a 12 on their engineering exam in school. They had to go back and take their LSATs again. They didn't get this job. This journal turned them down. You know, they failed at their first business. That, You know, we kind of have this idea that success is like this when in reality success is like that i mean your listeners they can go google princeton professor failure cv the guy posted his really impressive tenured princeton cv but he also posted his failure cv wow the jobs he didn't get the journals that rejected him yeah he got the idea from this woman in the uk this academic and it kind of rocked the academic world because we don't talk about the, the struggle you know, so we look at someone else and we think, wow, it looks so they it looks so easy, so effortless. And then we try and it's it's a struggle. It takes a while to whatever, learn something or get good at something. So we think it must be us. Because right. we think we should come out of the womb knowing how to be a great speaker or how to do advanced calculus or whatever it mm -hmm. might be. Yeah, it's so funny when you as you've been sharing this, it I <laughs> I've never been able to forget this. I once had, and it actually speaks to one of your categories there with the soloist, the person on their own. And because when I left my, uh, my job and was like freelancing and was like kind of all over the place and it was like the beginning 2016, 2017, 
and it was like the first few months on my own I'd never been probably more insecure in my life and there was this funny thought that came to me be and I, I just I don't know where it came from but it was this thought of why don't you know everything yet it didn't even define what everything was. It was right, just right. this thought that came to me and it was super bizarre. And I, that's why I've never been able to forget it. And, and yeah, I think it speaks so like to that, like soloist. And I would actually love, like, could you explain more about why that might happen to people on their own, whether they're like entrepreneurs or artists or whatnot, is it the lack of society and community around you or? I think that's part of it. When you work alone, you're not getting feedback. You're not getting a performance review. You know, it's like, you have to wear all these hats. It's all on you. I mean, so definitely you're more susceptible when you work alone. Although I was speaking at Stanford University and we we were doing the, <clears throat> excuse me, that list of shoulds and nevers and always. And this young man said, I feel like I should already know what I came here to learn, uh, which is a, another version of what you just said. Like I should already know everything. Right. But if we, if we understood that we're entitled to make a mistake, have an off day, struggle to understand or master something, if we understood that there's a learning curve mm-hmm. and that the more you do anything, the better you'll get. Mm-hmm. Or that the wisest people ask for help. I mean, if we fundamentally shift our thinking about what it means to be competent, Mm -hmm. develop a healthy response to failure, mistakes, constructive feedback, and and become aware that a a certain amount of fear and self-doubt is just part of the achievement journey. Mm -hmm. These are all things that people who are, excuse me, I got that thing going around here. Um, People who are what I call humble humble realists, that's what they do. To me, that's the key to unlearning imposter syndrome Mm -hmm. is to become somebody who is genuinely humble but it's never felt like an imposter just to learn to think like they do. Wow. That is, that is so powerful. And that completely resonates with me because when you're insecure on your own, your ego has never been so like on guard to make sure nobody else is aware of just how lost or scared or uh, truly um, insecure you're really feeling. And so therefore, which is normal. You know, when I had my first like career coaching client, she didn't know she was my first but I certainly did, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's going to be stressful. Like you, why would you be confident? You've never done it before. So it's just, but if you can shift it to say, well, no matter what happens, good, bad, or indifferent, I'm going to learn a lot. Yeah. Oh, how I'd wished I'd known about your work. Cause uh, you know, <laughs> I could have had access it had I just done more research. I don't think, and it's great that we did talk about like how it presents. Cause um, <clears throat> I don't think I had, I was aware. It's funny as you get to maybe a particular point in your life, you think, okay, everybody kind of knows what this is. But when I was, um, whatever age that was, um, early, mid twenties, I didn't know actually what I was feeling was anything to do with imposter syndrome. And so therefore it was hard to look up or even question that thought that I just shared with you of why don't you know everything, the broad everything as if I should have known everything in the universe. Um, so it is so amazing that actually you are out there and hopefully with a little bit more knowledge, people can start to research, read your book and learn more about how. Yeah, and it sounds like for you, it was liberating to find out like, wait a minute, there's a name for this. Yeah. And other people feel this way too, <laughs> that it's not just us. Right. Yeah. Which actually brings me back. Um, so this work for you, did you have a personal connection to it or was it just um a general interest of yours? I'm going to make sure that you're feeling okay before you answer. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I totally identified. I was sitting in a class. I was a doctoral student at UMass Amherst and another student brought in a paper called The Imposter Phenomenon Among Much High Achieving Women. That was Pauline Clance and Suzanne Ein's paper that they wrote in 1978 and starts describing how all these bright, capable women felt like they were fooling folks and they were going to be found out. And I was like, oh my God, you know, nodding my head like a bobblehead doll. Looked around the room. All the other students were nodding their head like a bobblehead doll. So we decided to start a little imposter support group mm-hmm. and we would get together after class and talk about being intellectual frauds and how we're fooling all of our professors. And about the third week, I started to have this nagging sense that even though everyone else was saying they were an imposter, like mm-hmm. I knew I was only real. <laughs> they were like phony imposters, obviously. So I really shifted my whole focus. I was doing um, white on white racism awareness training work before that. I shifted and I decided to look more broadly at women's self-limiting attitudes and behaviors. And then kind of the rest was history. I started doing workshops and this is before the internet. So like putting up posters and putting a little ad in the newspaper and 
people would show up with their check for $40 or whatever, or charging them $25. I think it was $25 for a day long <laughs> workshop yeah. at a local hotel and like 40 women showed up and we're like, okay, I guess there's a need. That's uh, it's so, it's so cool to hear that. And just like where it's gone to now. And, and as you said, like, I mean, your work is different in that, like you also look at, you know, different races, it sounds like, and you even like the, you, you speak about this intersection, right? Between imposter syndrome and like inclusion training, essentially. Mm-hmm. What was there? What, it sounds like there were things that perhaps surprised you that you wanted to share with, with, with people at large in terms of, you know, our awareness of how there's like sexism, racism, and all of these isms, if you will, anti-Semitism, et cetera, and how that's affected imposter syndrome like what was it that you were finding because especially given the first part of the research that was not yours but other people's was it sounds like predominantly white too like yes Clance and Imes it, they're you know it's a university with mostly white students so those happen to be the people that they in, in who they were working with yes mm-hmm. so was there more I mean it's not I, I assume there was more imposter syndrome found in people who were minority groups was that your finding um, well, more in my dissertation, I, you know, kind of documented the role that societal stereotypes and expectations play. Okay. So, um, so I did, uh, talk about sexism, racism, and, and class dynamics over time. I've also kind of broadened that understanding to really realize that you're more susceptible if you belong to any group for whom there are stereotypes about competence or intelligence. Okay. So one of the questions I would ask my audience when I'm speaking is, <clears throat> excuse me, how many of you have ever felt underestimated because you were the youngest person in an achievement environment? Most people know what that's like. And how many of you have ever felt underestimated because you were the oldest person? Okay. And when I asked that question to Facebook employees, the 30-year-olds raised their hand. Because mm-hmm. at Facebook, it's like there's a lot very young mm-hmm. employee pool, right? So like you're 38, what do you know, right? Um People for whom English is not their first language are more vulnerable. I, I've spoken over 100 universities around the world, mostly to graduate students and medical students. The biggest group to always show up, Mackenzie, are the international students, which makes sense because they've got the same pressures everyone else has, but they're doing it in another culture and often in another language. And let's face it, we all feel smarter in our first language. Yeah. And, it, 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 you know, folks with disabilities, you know, there's that pressure to be kind of super disabled person. And again, especially if there's not a lot, you're one of the first, a few of the only. Now you've got that pressure to represent your entire your entire group. Um, and first generation, uh, you know, first generation students, first generation professionals also more susceptible to imposter syndrome. Uh, but that's not to say other people aren't, but <laughs> it helps explain why there's so many people now. The research actually interesting. There's been at least four studies that find imposter feelings highest amongst Asian Americans. Hmm. The researchers think it's a combination of family messaging and Asian culture. They have more of a collective sense of success so that the child's success um, represents the family, you know. Okay, yeah. You know, Western European, we have more individualized notions of success versus collective success. And then you kind of couple that with um, systemic bias, uh, the so-called the pressure to be the so-called model minority, ever achieving, ever striving. You know that you know you know you're stereotyping when you 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 meet someone who's Asian and they're a carpenter and you think oh they're not a doctor or a scientist or doing something in math or what have you. Wow, that totally makes sense based off people I've worked with or people that I've just met or even just friends in university um, going to school in Toronto there's a huge Asian population there and yeah I can I can absolutely see like the pressure and stuff that a lot of a lot of those people carried on their backs for Mm -hmm. all those reasons that you just said wow and so that being able to have that awareness of again like what is real what is it what is competence like and what is realistic given given the realities of 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 what our our right. brains are capable and and how we should be able to right is yeah is- and here's where it kind of intersects you know um we all 
have sat in a meeting or a class and not understood, but didn't want to raise our hand mm. because we didn't want to sound stupid or look stupid, right? We've all been there. And then someone asks our question and the person goes, oh, that's a brilliant question. Like, oh, damn, why, why didn't I ask the question? That was my question. The point that I always make with that story is that competence isn't knowing everything. Competence is not knowing with confidence. Being the person who says, excuse me, I'm not following. Do you mean this or do you mean that? Can you say more about that? I'm confused. And to say it with confidence, like that, that projects this belief that you have just as much right, like it's normal to ask a question. Why wouldn't I ask a question? Mm -hmm. On the other hand, might you feel more vulnerable if you're the only woman in the room, you're the youngest person, right? You're the 25-year-old young woman in a room full of 50-year-old mm -hmm. white guys, or just men generally, right? Um, right? Or you're the only person of color. Might you feel more vulnerable being the person who doesn't know, especially if you don't have a relationship with folks, they don't know you. Mm -hmm. You absolutely might. The point that I make, though, is that we have no control over what anyone in that room thinks of us. You know, we can only control our response. That's why I wanted to come from like the depths of our soul that we believe we have just as much right to mm -hmm. ask that question. And how often has that happened, Mackenzie, when, when somebody asked a question who was senior, you're like, oh, thank God they asked that because I was wondering the same thing. Like how mm -hmm. brave and how wonderful that they just, they felt perfectly capable, confident asking. Uh-huh, yeah. And you know what? I was also thinking like, if I was the 65 year old white man in the room and I didn't know the answer to it, uh, or maybe I knew the answer to the question, but you know, a 21 year old, you know, woman who is new to the company and this is for some reason, some big company meeting. And she asked a question, I would think, wow, I wish I had that confidence at 21. Like I would be impressed yeah. by yeah. her or him or whoever. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, and, and it's important when you ask not to say, this is probably a dumb question huh. or everyone probably understands this, but me, but, you know, or mm. I mean, those kind of qualifiers. Which is oh, so common, right? Like Absolutely. all the time. All the time. I'm thinking even, um, I think I even said it to you during, while we were talking here, saying something and then going, if that makes sense, or like all of those um, sorts of things where you're like, Maybe that doesn't mean, I mean, sometimes perhaps we don't make sense, but I think a lot of those kinds of, as you said, qualifiers are tagged onto sentences. Right. Just showcasing. And you know, they're really a way to protect ourselves. Yeah. Because if I say this is probably a dumb question, you go, yeah, it was. Like, hey, I know I'm the first one who said it. Right. 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 All Not that anybody would say that, but it's a way to protect ourselves. I know. I, I mean, there's, there's some, there's some unkind people, which is, which is what everybody's nervous. I suppose, Absolutely. There are a lot of unkind people. That's true. Oh my gosh. So I guess I, I imagine that for yourself at this point in your life, or maybe I'm wrong. Do you experience those feelings anymore of imposter syndrome, given you're so immersed in the work, you are almost yeah. the work at this point? <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I really, what I teach people is it's not about completely eliminating imposter syndrome. Yeah. If that happens, that's great. To me, it's about having the information and insight and tools. So when you have a normal imposter moment, you can kind of talk yourself down more quickly. Mm -hmm. That said, I've really realized in the last few years that I don't feel like an imposter anymore. The difference is, like I did this little six minute, this little six minute. I mean, I say little because it was six minutes. They literally gave us six minutes. That's what made it little. Wow. Uh, yeah. TED Talk at TED headquarters. We, I was, it was almost like an idea contest, and they picked ten of us to go down there, and, and speak in front of TED, other TED speakers at TED headquarters. It was the most stressful thing I've ever done in my whole life, and I spent hundreds of hours writing it practicing it, timing it. It was incredibly stressful. Big, bright lights, big cameras. I watched it. You looked, you, it was great. It was well done. Like oh, I, I did not. You know, I know what it like. I, as a speaker, I have this visceral feeling when I know like I'm nailing it. I can feel it while it's happening. Like I am crushing it. I did not have that feeling. Oh. I blanked out in the middle of it. I lost my train of thought and I quickly, I threw something in there that wasn't in my talk. And fortunately I got back on track. Wow. But I did not feel good after that. I, I mean, I was really depressed for about three days. Uh, um, uh, but here's the here's the difference. It, people, Somebody said to me, oh, so you felt like an imposter. I said, no, hmm. I didn't feel like I fooled anyone. I wasn't discounting my past abilities or accomplishments. Um, I didn't feel like I was less capable or competent. I said, I was disappointed. 
Okay. And it's okay to be disappointed if you don't do a good job or you blow the presentation or you what, what, don't blow the big sale. What? It's okay to be disappointed, but just not ashamed. And it doesn't have to then lead you to feel like an imposter. That's the difference. That is the difference. And I also I imagine, as you said, it was three days, which you know, imposter syndrome, if you're living with that can be your whole life or it can be years. It also sounds right. therefore like this evolved you doesn't hold on to that, those right. adjacent right. feelings. It's not the same feeling right. an adjacent feeling quite as long. Right. Exactly. It didn't like keep me from going out and presenting anymore. You know, it was just like, I had to like lick my wounds and like be bummed out for a couple of days. And yeah. then I was like, okay, kind of move on. And if they do another TED talk, I am so much more prepared. Mm-hmm. It's amazing when you hear stuff like that, because obviously as a spectator, and I'm sure people, many people have told you this is like watching that, I, you have zero inkling whatsoever that you, because I don't even recall being like, oh, she just, not that I would, but like, oh, she just fumbled the word, like nothing, none of that. It was not even like an, oh, you know, you can kind of watch people sometimes and you're like, oh, you're like kind of like, you, you feel their pain as you see them visibly kind of stumble on something. But as if you were, I... I was just like, oh, that was, it was very interesting. And it's just funny how we can experience things so, so different as that person doing it. Well, and you know what people don't realize is they edit those TED Talks. Like Mm -hmm. if you really did stumble, they would, you know, when they get to the editing room, they would take that out. Oh, that's nice. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, There was a guy that night, he forgot his train of thought for like three minutes. Oh, he just kind of stood there like tra- racking his brain to like, where was I? And the crowd was like, they're all TED speakers. So they were you know, totally in his court. But yeah, you know, it's, oh, it's you know, it's stressful. <laughs> it's yeah. Stressful. I mean, six minutes, that is like that in that sense, that qualifier of little is important because six minutes is, oh my God, it's like, it's a sprint in terms of a speech and oh, you have absolutely. to nail every stride basically. <laughs> well, what was tough was in six minutes, having like a beginning, a middle end to, like, to make these coherent points in six minutes. It's actually easier to do 20 minutes than sure. it is to do six minutes. I imagine it's, to me, it's like running the 400 or the 1500, 400 so hard meters, but yeah, I'm thinking back in school, I like track yeah. 400 yeah. meters, incredibly tough. You basically have to sprint the whole time. Yeah. Wow. Oh my gosh. Okay. And I guess the last thing I'll just ask you here is about the Imposter Syndrome Institute, because I know that is a recent founding of yours, just mm-hmm. I guess now it's three years ago, 2021. Um, did you want to share a little bit about that and what you have going on there with the Institute? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I co-founded it with uh, an old friend of mine, Carolyn Herfirth from New York. We were both had our independent businesses for many years and decided to join forces to you know, I'm not going to be around forever. And we really looking to how can we take like my intellectual property, my point of view, my thoughtware, if you will, Mm -hmm. and, you know, disseminate it to a larger audience. And how do we make, how do we go into organizations, you know, not just dealing with individuals, but how do we make an impact on organizations? So you can have kind of an imposter free culture within an organization. Mm-hmm. And because there's costs and consequences, not just to individuals, but also to the organization uh, as well. So we do a lot of work with corporations, um, you know, universities, we're going to be putting together some programs kind of off the shelf where people can buy it and bring it into their organization. But we also train folks who are already speakers from around the world to, we license them to take my talk, which is called Rethinking Imposter Syndrome. It's either a 60 minute talk or a 90 minute, two hour interactive program. And we train them and license them so they can go out and and lead that as well. And we have a program called the Imposter Syndrome Informed Coach. So people who are executive coaches, career coaches, life coaches are more obviously informed about imposter syndrome when they're when they're coaching clients that's amazing wow what a legacy really to to leave like whenever you decide like um I wish not to work anymore I am going to take a take a seat and feel like here's all my body of work I love that it's so it's so impactful like what a gift for the world really to to share that yeah it doesn't make sense to put in a closet and let it die like let let folks yeah utilize it yeah yeah, no, I absolutely love that. And is there anywhere else 
online is that the main hub for you right now is there anywhere else you'd want to direct people if they're yeah, pretty much I'm, I'm on linkedin i think it's just valerie young at linkedin and i think facebook it's dr valerie young i think okay perfect i don't do much on twitter anymore you... no no more on twitter uh, twitter's kind of been you know yeah <laughs> another another subject <laughs> exactly that's what i was like should i get <laughs> maybe perhaps not um but yeah truly thank you so much it was so i'm so honored that you took the time and i don't know is there anything else that you feel called to share in this moment or yeah the last thing i think i would share is that as we think about these imposter feelings we kind of recognize that it's not all about us that there's costs and consequences more broadly, right? That that everybody loses when bright people pull back or burn out or chronically procrastinate or whatever it might be, that it, it is costly to the world. And just put your gifts out there. That's important to say. I'm so glad you ended on that. We could have gone 30 minutes, I think, just on that because it's yep. huge. It's so important to say. Wow. Well, thank you so much again. Thank you so much for joining us on the North Star podcast. I am so grateful for your time and your presence. If you want to chime in on the conversation, you can send me a DM at Mac Castro on Instagram. I mean it when I say that I'm really always happy to hear from you, be it with regards to your insights gleaned from this episode or with regard to your own unfolding journey at large. I do believe that we each have our own North Star and it's our duty to do the inner work to get to know ourselves so that we can live in harmony with our souls, carry out our calling, and serve others with the gifts we have each been uniquely blessed with in this lifetime. Thank you again for joining us and I'll see you next time.